I'm crouching behind a rusty shipping container, clutching an AK-47 while enemy gunfire echoes off the bombed-out buildings in this abandoned city. I need to get to the top floor of a shattered low-rise office complex, and there's no time like the present. But before I take three steps, a masked man with military webbing and body armour looms into view. There's a sudden flash of a large knife, and a grunt. Mine. The world lurches sideways and the screen turns red. In just a moment I'll respawn and enter the battle again. And again. And again. This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. Mark Hadley is a journalist and media commentator whose article in the April Signs of the Times magazine will really make you think about the impact of violent media on your attitudes, your relationships, even the physical structures of your brain. I caught up with Mark via Skype. So Mark, it's often the perception that entertainment over, I guess, recent decades at least has become more violent. Is that true or or is that just a you know, looking back at the golden age of yesteryear when things were wonderful and comparing it to, you know, how terrible the youth of today are. (laughs) I actually ask myself regularly whether or not I'm just becoming an old man or whether or not I'm actually looking at at certain trends that are shifting across our society. And I would say probably on a personal level, I've been working in the media for 30 years now, and it would be fair for me to say from my observation that what we are playing with now, whether it be uh, visual entertainment or the games that we sort of uh, spend our spare time on uh, is distinctly more violent than what it was 30 years ago. Now, does that mean that we as a species, if you like, have become more violent? Well, that's a bigger question, uh, but I would say that we have become more tolerant. And I don't really have to look too far to see the evidence for that because it's not really just how I feel about things. Uh, I find that in the end, it's not just me being a really old man about it. Um, I can look at really quite uh, reference material like uh, the best-selling games or the sorts of films that have come out, the, the rate of violence within those games, and be able to actually say, look, uh, we are trending up and start asking questions like, what does that mean for us to be watching, to be titillating ourselves with such violence? Yeah. So can you be specific? Are there things that in previous decades perhaps we never would have seen you know, on our TV screens or in a computer game that we do regularly see now? Or have the um, classification authorities in Australia, for example, actually shifted the goalposts when it comes to what's considered appropriate or what's considered appropriate for certain age groups? Yeah, look, I can be quite specific. Um, for example, uh, if you're looking at uh, blood um, uh, as, a, uh, as a measure of uh, what people are able to see and not able to see, there was a time where in which if actually blood was shown uh, in a, uh, a film, uh, like a shooting, and there was what we would call um, specific or, or um, high-level violence, um, that would earn us an MA15 plus or an R rating. Uh, and that's as uh, pretty, you know, that's not terribly far back. I mean, we're talking about the 90s. Uh, but today, that's more likely to sit inside of the M and MA15 rather 
rather than the R, an automatic R. There was a time where in which someone who was killed quite explicitly and straight on, on screen for all to see would have led us straight to that R rating, but it doesn't do so anymore. And that's because, yeah, the authorities that you're talking about are taking into consideration what has become normalised you know, within society today. Uh, but I want to be clear that this is not just something we're seeing in the entertainment realm. Now, that's where I've spent most of my career, but the truth is that um, I came out of a journalism background. So I yeah. remember actually sitting in the 80s uh, in a, a conference uh, of news directors from around the world, and we were talking about what was appropriate to show in the news bulletin and what wasn't. Uh, and so, for example, um, there was a particular piece of footage that was showing some violence in South Africa at that at that particular time. And we had a look at what aired in America, which was really quite tame, uh, and then what aired uh, from the same footage in Italy, which was really quite explicit, you know, almost a murder on screen. Wow. Uh, and then within the middle somewhere along the line was um, uh, Australia. You know, we were sitting quite balanced. Now, that's the 80s. Uh, but now, not simply because of the news, but because of social media and the ability to actually uh, turn everyone into a journalist with a camera phone, uh, the level of explosive material, if you like, uh, is rising in all sorts of areas in our life, not just the news and not just entertainment. And so entertainment and the news are chasing that, if you like. Uh, so it's not unusual now uh, for news services to find themselves on the back foot to what everybody has seen and starting to be drawn further and further into seeing material that is more risque or more um, inherently violent. Uh, and so, yeah, if, as I look back on those decades, it's not just the authorities themselves that are responsible for games or films, but a society itself that's being drawn closer to seeing quite specifically violent things because we can. Uh, and so, if you like, it's a process of repeating itself. Mm-hmm. I guess I, I think back to, you know, some of the, you know, a, a couple of thousand years ago where, you know, the idea of entertainment in ancient Rome, for example, was the Colosseum and, you know, live people being, you know, torn apart by wild animals or, or gladiators and, and that sort of thing. We certainly don't see that now. Um, in fact, our societies in the West, for example, um, we our murder rate is actually going down. In our everyday lives, there seems to be a lot less violence than before. Uh, well, it, that, that's a good point, Ken. Uh, but there's probably two things to talk about there. The first is that um, what has in fact actually happened between the Roman arena and the present day is uh, the, the increasing understanding of the value of the individual. Okay, so with the, with the death of uh, the idea that one person is more valuable than another uh, and that pervasive idea that every life has particular value, we've actually seen, you know, violence in that sort of entertainment way, if you like, decrease. I mean, that's actually, historically speaking, part of the impact of, of Christianity, for example. Yeah. I mean, Christianity has actually had that valuing of the individual, now, regardless of what you think about God or religion, it's one of the better able to be proven uh, effects of Christianity that it's introduced this value of an individual. Yeah. But you actually take us on to the idea also of uh, where we're going with uh, entertainment. Uh, and I think that in terms of entertainment, it's not really that uh, we are becoming a more violent society. So you're right, murder rates are going down. It's what we're becoming tolerant or familiar with. Yeah. So perceptions of violence 
are on the increase. So our idea of the world in which we live in is one of a more violent or more dangerous or risky place. We're actually more fearful yeah. than we used to be, isn't that the case? Much more so. Uh, so this is the interesting thing that, look, when I look at, um, say, studies uh, say across the media for our tolerance of violence, what I often find uh, instead is not that I'm seeing us become more violent, but we are becoming more fascinated with violence and we are becoming less concerned about it appearing in our uh, our entertainment. So mm. the Australian Broadcasting Association in 2003, way back, we're talking now the better part of 15 years back, was saying that, look, um, standards had to be changed in the media simply because we are just not as worried about it or we're not as affected. Um, but then on the same time, we actually have another rise and that's uh, in the perception of violence. Mm. So, for example, the, the easiest way I can put this is you want to walk your kids to school. Okay, there was a time when we would say, okay, kids, you kiss them at the door and you walk, and you let them go and they walk off to school. Now, that's only a few decades back. Yeah. Um, it's a practice that was common in the 70s and 80s and many of your listeners will probably remember they used to walk to school. But the rates at which we allow children to walk to school unattended now uh, are dramatically lower simply because of our perception of how dangerous society might be. Mm -hmm. Is society more dangerous? Criminally speaking, statistically speaking, no, it's not. But our feeling that the world is a more violent place mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. and that's changed a lot. Yeah. I mean, th there are still obviously, you know, thankfully, increasingly isolated occasions where people do commit terrible crimes, you know, murders and tortures and rapes and, and this sort of stuff. And, and often when that happens in the process of, of investigating the crime, they discover that, you know, that this person was into violent games or watched violent movies. And, and the thesis is then advanced that, look, you know, violent media is actually a factor in leading people to commit violent acts. Does the research bear that out? Look, it, 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 the short answer to that question is no, it doesn't. Um, the problem here, okay, as you say, is that it is a factor, okay? So often people who want to say, look, our world is much more violent today, point to um, the video collections of serial killers and say, look, look, they were, they were watching Full Metal Jacket, look at all this sort of stuff. Or, but the question is, is this the cause mm. of their uh, mental condition or is it in fact actually a symptom of it? Um, were they devaluing people beforehand and this led them to be more uh, open to this? And I go, I've got to say that we, we really have to be careful about drawing hard lines between, you know, uh, what somebody watches and what somebody does, simply because there are a lot of factors involved. Um, some of the major ones happen to be how a child is parented um, or how a child um, is, is educated or what their uh, socioeconomic status can be within society. You know, are they struggling to, ma to have a crust and, and so, so to speak? And they can have uh, large effects too. Sure. But it, it's just sexier, if you don't mind me saying it that way, to, to get somebody to find out that somebody has been a murderer and to discover that they, their favourite film was Silence of the Lambs. You know, yeah. it's not necessarily that it follows, but it does point to areas of concern. So I go that far. Yeah, okay. Now, Mark, in, in your article um, that appears in this month's uh, the April edition of Signs of the Times, you do spend quite a bit of time explaining that while violent media m may not cause people, as you've just pointed out, to, to commit violent acts, that kind of media does still have an effect 
on our brains. Can you outline some of that research for us? Yeah, sure. Um, basically, what we're talking about is neuroplasticity. Um, and there'll be a bunch of uh, medical people who probably listen to your program who won't be surprised about what I'm talking about. But for the rest of us, let me give you a crash course. Uh, basically, what this means is that when you learn anything, you lay down a pathway in your brain. Uh, basically, your brain is literally reorganizing uh, itself chemically so that you can more naturally and easily do something. Hmm. Now, if you change your habits regularly enough, your brain adapts, okay, so that it can regularly give the responses that you're looking for. Now, we first started to notice this. Uh, there's some good friends of mine over at the uh, University of Sydney started to notice this in the area of pornography, yeah. um, the negative connotations, that if you aim to stimulate yourself via pornography again and again and again, your brain actually rewires. Yeah. Like it, it says, this is how I, I'm getting arousal now. This is what I'm doing. So I'm only going to be aroused unless I start seeing things this way. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's a, a tragedy because that starts to really mess with the healthy operation of the human body. Mm. But mm. it also has an effect in the way that we engage with our society around us. So you, you brought up the, the topic of how we perceive our society. Are we more fearful? If there's a, uh, a murder on the news, we can understand that. Yeah. Uh, and we look at that in the context of fact and things that have happened around us. But if, for example, we then watch three more murders a night um, as part of the television program or entertainment, um, we're telling ourselves that the society around us uh, is much more populated with violent crime than we would necessarily have facts to back us up on. But mm. it still does the work. Particularly, Mark, if you live in a small, quiet English country town, apparently. A, a, a <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I've just got to say that um, for all the fans like myself of Midsummer Murders, would you ever live in the Lakes District of England? You know, <laughs> it looks like Every Saturday night, there's some nutter killing somebody off. And, you know, there it is, a small country police force trying to deal with some of the most gruesome and, and, and amazing murders on it. But, of course, this is not reality, but we're still doing brain surgery with the remote because mm. we're affirming something and we're changing our expectations as to what we see uh, around us. So we, we have a sense that, that a child abduction is much higher uh, than it actually is in society. And so because of, of the entertainment we might watch, and so it makes us fearful. Mm. Or we're, um, we're led to believe that uh, people of Middle Eastern origin uh, can uh, are generally speaking much more violent uh, by the media that we watch, and so therefore this changes our expectation. And you can go on and on about this. And, and you make the point, Mark, that it's the effect is not only about fear of you know personal crime but but this brain rewiring can actually affect our, our social or even political attitudes that's true so um if you have been led to believe by everything you watch the greatest fears in the world today all reside in the middle east um you're not going to vote for a, a party that's all in favor of, of opening the doors to people who are suffering from syria Okay, the reason being that you're going to feel very much uh, at a subconscious level somewhat threatened by what's going on over there. Uh, and so we start to actually uh, do away with the better sides of our nature. Uh, we have within us as human beings, uh, I believe, a design to be compassionate, to be looking towards each other. We're supposed to be existing communally, but that sort of view of the world turns us inward. It stops us, it makes us protective rather than expansive. 
And yeah, I fear that that uh, that sort of entertainment, what we choose to to, as I say, operate on ourselves with, um, can actually have long term effects, not just at a personal level, but at a social level too. Yeah, sure. So, Mark, in, in your article, um, you took an, an interesting turn because obviously, you know, you talked about the most popular computer games and, and movies and, and how violent they were. And, th- and then you did discuss, as you just have with us now, the scientific research of, of the effects of violent media on the brain. But then you took what might seem to some people to be a strange left turn and you quoted the Bible in your article, which is strange because obviously there, there weren't televisions, there, there weren't movies, there, there weren't computer games in Bible times. So what do you think the Bible has to say that is actually in any way relevant to this topic? <laughs> you know, Ken, I'm actually a big believer that we're not the first to have thought of things just because we came up with digital watches. Um, I <laughs> feel that we live in a strange sort of uh, world which sometimes elevates our own opinion of, of the present age because we have computers and we have things like that. But people have been dealing with the problem of violence for a long time. And the reason why I turned the article towards, as we were talking about violence, towards the the, the end of it to uh, the Bible was because uh, there was a strong connection um, in, in regard to the Bible uh, as to where this sort of problem comes from. Mm. So when the Bible talks about, uh, I guess, a word like sin, which some people might find uncomfortable, but basically mm. think of it uh, as moral rebellion. You know, when the Bible talks about that sort of behavior, which we can all condemn, it doesn't say that somebody just decides to do it. It says it grows out of them. It uh-huh. comes out of the heart. And that's the term the Bible used to talk about the seed of our affections and our emotions. Mm. Uh, and so when the Bible says if you're going to fill your heart um, with all sorts of things that are actually unhealthy, why would you expect to have uh, a healthy result, you know, in your life or in society outside of it. Mm. So the the interesting thing is that um, there's a fellow called uh, the Apostle Paul. He was actually talking. He was actually talking about neuroplasticity before it was called neuroplasticity. Okay. And so he's right. He's writing this letter right to this church in Philippi, uh, and he's he writes this line, brothers and sisters. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy. Think about these such things, okay, mm-hmm. and the God of peace will be with you. Now, the result he's actually looking for is peace. Yeah. And he's saying, look, do you want to have peace? You've got to start with your head. Yeah. You've actually got to start with what you're, where you're directing your heart and what you're shaping yourself on. Now, this is neuroplasticity 101, mm. that if you want to actually affect the way that you are uh, relating to the world around you, both physically and intellectually, you've actually got to start laying down healthy pathways for your brain. Sure. Uh, and, and you can't expect if you spend 90% of your time laying down unhealthy pathways that you're going to have a healthy attitude to the world. So that's why I went to the Bible, because basically it was just a really good source material for how these sorts of things work and a reminder that these are the sort of problems that human beings have been confronting, not just for since the age of television, but for thousands of years. Okay, so let, let's just re- review um, that uh, that quote from the Apostle Paul that that you read to us, because he listed a, a whole lot of things that uh, he recommended uh, that his his readers focus on. What what were they again? Okay, so uh, yeah, I, happily I have it in front of me here. So it's whatever is true, whatever uh-huh. is noble, whatever is right. Pure, lovely, admirable, 
anything that's excellent or praiseworthy, set your mind on these things. Okay, so basically he's, he's talking about focusing on the positive, is, isn't he, really? Yeah, but he's going a little further than um, the power of positive thinking. So I don't want anybody who's listening to think I'm just Tony Robbins and saying, <laughs> you know, have your best life now, grab that. Um, no, what he's actually saying is that these things have a source, mm -hmm. okay? So the, the weird thing is that um, you can't just manufacture within yourself a, a good feeling. I, I don't know how, what your experience is with this, Ken. Yeah. If I decide sometimes, right, I'm, I'm feeling down, I'm just going to feel good now, I, I'm not sure how long my own determination to feel good or be good yeah. really lasts terribly well. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think there is an element of willpower. There is an element of choice and mind over matter, but, but often I, I think you're right, it goes further than that. Yeah, exactly. Well, in what Paul would say, I mean, Paul's approach to this was that there is an external source of good which you apply to, uh, and that is what empowers us, that, that in fact we rose out of a creative source of good. Now, the Christian calls that God. Okay, yeah. so the Christian looks at God and says, you, you didn't just make me, but you made the standard of all good. Uh, you are, you know, the Bible actually refers to God as God is truth. Mm -hmm. He's not saying God is truthful. He's saying the the ultimate standard of truth is God or God is love. He's not saying that God is loving. He's saying that the ultimate standard of love is God. Mm. So if I want to concentrate on these things, turning my mind towards God, the source of these things, and focusing on him, and and the Christian would say, Asking for the strength that I need to do that, realizing I can't do it myself, um, is the most sensible way to start that operation on your brain, so to speak. Mm. It's the way to actually start turning things away. I don't think, to be honest, in 30 years of news and, and television media, I don't think human beings are great at reinventing ourselves. Mm. It's like one of those phrases that you hear, like, you know, oh, he's really turned over a new leaf or he's really reinvented himself. And I just don't think we're that great at it. Mm -hmm. And yet I find that those people who like, um, gee, you know, this is the, the first the premise of Alcoholics Anonymous, the, um, those who admit that they have a problem and need assistance in, in dealing with it yeah. find that they, they can locate the strength outside of themselves to do it. And that's basically what Paul's going about. So it's not just concentrating on good things. It's realizing where that good stuff comes from mm. and looking for the strength to, to adopt it. Yeah, I, th I think it's really important to understand that broader view because I know there have been some Christians, for example, who've looked at verses like that and they just read, well, whatever is true, think on these things. And they say, well, therefore, I should only uh, read nonfiction books, not fiction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I see what you're saying, yeah. Look, I, I think that um, from a, the perspective of a scriptwriter, um, gee, I, I hope that person doesn't put me out of business. But <laughs> what, what I'd like to say there is that even when we look at fiction, um, what we're doing is we're looking at a reflection often. The good things in fiction are just a reflection of a, of a greater character, um, mm. you know, a, another source. So there was uh, one particular writer put it this way. He said that, that you know, the, the world owes all its goodness to God, mm. uh, but um, it's a broken mirror. Um, and the and the the reflections are in fractured pieces. You can still find them though. Yeah. And so I feel like in in fiction pieces, every time I see something that really does ring true to me, or pure, or lovely, or something like that, 
I can find its genesis in the character of God. I can find the beginning back there, but I can still celebrate it. Mm. Uh, even if a non-Christian has brought it a bit, brought it to my attention. If sure, that makes sense. sure. And I mean, you mentioned pure and lovely, and and I think, well, you know, that that sounds that sounds you know really good and very positive. But then, I mean, there are things in the world that are horrible, and I mean, is the answer to that to to bury our heads in the sand and pretend they're not happening? I mean, and I think, well, it can't be because you know when I read the Bible, I see some pretty horrific examples of you know of betrayal, of of mass murder, of um, of rape, and and all sorts of horrible things. So, is the Bible itself being hypocritical and saying we should focus on what is pure and lovely, and then containing? Those things. Like, how, how do you, um, you know, maintain that balance between being in touch with really what's going on in the world, but still maintaining this focus on, you know, what is good and true and pure and lovely? That's a really good point there, Ken. I'm wondering, um, you know, to some someone's perspective, they probably thought Paul would have really liked to have had an editor to go through the rest of the Bible and get rid of the nasty bits that people shouldn't be knowing anything about. But as you put, <laughs> as you put it, the truth is that the Bible wants you to concentrate on these good things in contrast to what's going on in the world around you, which means you really have to recognize what's going on in the world around you. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to, you you can't understand love without seeing hate. Uh, In fact, Jesus, um, again, like probably the most prominent character of the Bible, uh, Jesus actually says quite clearly, uh, he links the two, you've got enemies, I want you to love them. That's the good I want you to do. You need to actually take these these good things that we're asking ourselves to concentrate on and change the direction of our minds and apply them to the world around us or they're meaningless. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, what we end up with is a very monastic sort of world where in which we shut ourselves away and and trim out all the, the bad things and somehow tell ourselves that we'll be better for it. But what monastic sects have found for, for centuries now is that even if you manage to lock yourself away on a mountaintop somewhere, you've still got yourself and your own heart with you, and the problem is heart deep. So what do we do? Well, we need to do something about that heart itself. Mm, That's mm. why personally, I think there are lots of different practical ways we can talk about doing it, but right at the heart of it is going to be how do I bring this self of mine that's in rebellion, uh, has been adversely affected maybe by a lot of the things that I've watched, uh, but but it's still in itself, you know, struggling against good. How do I bring that to the direction it should be going? Well, I need some help. Yeah. And that's probably the first place to start. Yeah, sure. Well, let's go there, Mark, because I mean, in your position as a a media critic and and reviewer, um, you obviously come across a a lot of material that perhaps if it was, you know, just simply up to what you choose to watch, you you wouldn't choose to watch it. So how do you sort of deal with some of the, you know, the toxic effects of of some of those media products that are out there? And what, what practical tips could you share with our listeners just in the few minutes that we have left. Sure. You make me laugh, actually, because a few um, people have often said to me as I've reviewed something, why the heck did you watch that? And I go, well, basically, so you didn't have to. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. that is that is part of the job. Uh, but practically, I've had to take into consideration a couple of things. Practically speaking, I don't watch things alone if I can help it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's weird, I know. But um, often, uh, my uh, 
if I if you make friends with me, there's a fair chance you're going to end up going to the pictures with me. Yeah. Because when I have to do a preview, um, I'll get two tickets so I can sit with someone. Now that's not just so that I can see the reaction of the film on somebody else and get a bit of information for my review, mm. but it's also so that I can be mindful that I'm not just drifting into getting used to watching something. So other people. Um, respond and that reminds me too that hey yeah you know that is that's a grim thing and I should be concerned about that because mm. you don't want to be worn down gradually imperceptibly mm, desensitized um, yeah, is the word we often yeah, use desensitized isn't it? exactly mm. um, the other thing I, I do is I keep good accounts uh, with people who are aware enough of my uh, of my work or my exposure so that I can actually um, you know, debrief with them and talk about how things have been. And I wish this was my idea, but the truth is a lot of people who are exposed to difficult things in their lives um, have been doing this for, for centuries. Again, so medics uh, and doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists mm. and people who've had to confront the worst policemen um, are quite used to the fact that having an accountability partner can be helpful. Someone who knows you well enough to ask you. And it, right down at the friendship level, um, Kent, if you and a friend have good interests in a particular television-style program, you like procedural dramas or crime dramas and stuff like that, yeah. it's good as friends to ask each other, hey, what are you watching at the moment? And how much time are you spending watching it? And how's that going? Do you think that's affecting you? you know, and if I didn't have that habit... I suspect I would have slid into tolerance of all sorts of things a long time ago mm, in this mm, industry. Wow. Yeah. What, but but what, quite possibly the most important step I take, practically speaking, is I, I bring myself – now, I'm speaking as a Christian, so this may not be the answer to everybody who is um, uh, listening today. But as a Christian, I bring myself back to, that, to God each day as a standard bearer. And I say to him, look, what – is it that is about your character that I've really got to take notice of today? And I try and do that at the beginning. And I try and do that at the end of the day, mm. you know, when I'm washed up after all the sort of stuff I've had to deal with. Just, just to sort of to, to reorient yourself, to, to recenter yourself on really what is the most important thing in, in your life. Exactly, because the drift is a subtle one. Mm. Um, and it's very, very easy for us to be sort of slowly moving away from good standards. Uh, and since the media is the way the media is at the moment, both entertainment and news, it's not pushing in the direction that healthy hearts want to go. And so you've got to, you've got to be aware of that. Yeah, yeah. And it's often in actually pushing in the direction of unhealthiness. I mean, you know, we talk about Netflix binges and things like this, and it's very much a reality of, of media consumption today. Well, one thing that I've really noticed is if I've gone, you know, overseas for a couple of weeks, for example, to a developing country where, you know, there isn't any TV, that I don't have access to, you know, the internet and things like that, when I get back and switch on the TV and, and open up my laptop again and continue with the same media content I was watching before I left, I'm sort of shocked by, it, you know, by what I was watching, by what I was involved with. And, and I realized that in some senses, because of that break, I've been sort of re-sensitized in, in some ways. Um, I guess I'm just wondering, do you think a, a media fast from time to time is perhaps part of a way to, um, you know, to take that opportunity to ask God, hey, you know, can you help me, you know, recenter and, and get some focus back on the, these issues? Uh, I, I think what you're doing is awesome. Um, but, but can I play with your language a little and maybe, you know, to say to our listeners sure. that if you're, going on a, if you're going on a diet, we all know that you can lose weight pretty quickly by just stopping eating yeah. you know, altogether and that will have an effect on you, but it's hard to maintain. Um, a healthy diet 
is something that actually has to, to come into to play if you're going to actually manage mm. your weight well. It's got to be and part like, of your lifestyle, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So likewise, um, I think a fast every now and again is a good thing because it reminds us of how much we might be relying on the media. But at the same time, I want to say a healthy diet. Have you ever sat down and mapped out just how many hours that you watch or mm. how many time, how many hours you spend on the computer or, or how many hours you spend on social media? Um, if you look at that, you need to balance it. You need to balance that diet out. And I like to balance out um, at least you know, social media time with real time with people mm. or, for that matter, um, time I spend um, getting all sorts of other messages into my head with time I spend selecting messages like you know, the Bible to mm. actually come into my head. And I need to try and balance. I just, I guess I need to be aware of what my diet is and have a healthy diet going forward. It's good to it's good to stop the um, the you know, to, to counteract the binges with the fast. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But long term, if you want to have a healthy brain, you have to have habits that are ones that begin at 9 a.m. and finish at 10 p.m. and, and they're just part of your daily existence, and that that will help you a long way. Hey, thanks so much, Mark. Um, yeah, I really appreciate those practical tips, you know, as well as those spiritual tips and those neurological insights as well. Um, yeah, r- really appreciate you being part of Signs of the Times Radio. Always happy to. Feel free to call me in the future. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. This is an Adventist Media podcast.